Well, today we finish up our dash through Philippians, our little dash through Philippians. So if you would like, if you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. That is where we will be today. Let me just read that for us. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day to come into your midst, amidst your people, and to worship you. We come, Father, hungry, we come needy, we come with open arms, ready to receive. And we pray, Father, that through your word you would give us today what we need, not what we want. Pray, Father, that you would give us comfort, give us conviction of our sin, give us a deeper and fuller understanding of who you are. Father, we have many questions on our hearts, we have many disappointments, we have many um, cares that desire to take our joy from us. And we pray, Father, that you... Give us your presence so that we may have your joy. And we pray, Father, that you would give it to us in fullness. And we pray, Father, that you begin now through this word. We pray in the name of your Son. Amen. Various forms of the word joy appear 20 times in the book of Philippians. It's important to Paul that the Philippians experience joy. It's so important, in fact, he commands them to do it. He commands them in 2.18.3.1 and twice in our text in 4.4. But joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Paul is, in fact, commanding the Philippians to do something that is only granted to them by God. The point that Paul is ultimately making is that joy is found only in Jesus. If you want joy, true fulfillment, contentment, and rapture in the deepest sense, then you can only get it from Jesus. Telling them to rejoice is telling them to turn to Christ in the midst of their circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. Always turn to the Lord. That is essentially what he's saying. Joy will fill you as the Lord fills you. To rejoice always is to perpetually have Christ with you. But what is joy? Joy is the sensation we experience when Jesus dwells in us. With salvation comes joy. David's sin and part of his repentance was a desire to experience God's joy once again. He says in Psalm 51.12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Sin separates us from the Lord, and so sin separates us from joy. Many Christians don't experience joy, plain and simple, because sin is preventing them from the fullness of Christ that he's promised us. Being lukewarm or apathetic will diminish the presence of Jesus, which in fact diminishes the presence of joy. His presence, the presence of our loving Lord, is the presence of joy. The Spirit dwells in believers, and his presence produces the fruit of joy, as I said. It says in Acts 13.52 and 1 Thessalonians 1.6, the spirit of joy is received by believers. The presence of God is the presence of joy. Joy is a byproduct of our life in Christ. Jesus bestows joy as he abides inside of us. Joy can't be found in anything else. That's what Paul wants the Philippians to know. There is no joy without Christ. Non-believers cannot experience a true sense of joy because they are, of course, separated from God by sin. Joy can't be sought in itself. 
Joy is not happiness. As citizens of the United States, we all know that the pursuit of happiness is crucial to our identity as Americans. It's very important. Americans, we are all about the pursuit of happiness. But as citizens of heaven, the pursuit of joy, the pursuit of Jesus' continual presence is crucial to our identity as Christians. Our modern concept of happiness originates in the concept of blessing from Jewish and classical thought. The one blessed by God is happy because he's wealthy, he has a full fridge, everything is going very well. Happiness is an attitude about our situation that has to do with material blessing and comfort. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere, is happiness commanded. Nowhere is happiness promised. Material blessing and contentment is never, in any place in the Bible, promised or commanded by God. We confuse joy with happiness. And so when we hear the command, rejoice, we think of happiness. But happiness is taken away very quickly, right? If I were to take your car or your big screen or your nice guitar or your food, if you took my steak dinner, you would see my happiness flee very quickly, right? Anytime you take away our material possessions that make us happy, you take away happiness. But we are not called to be happy in all things, but to rejoice in all things, Both happiness and joy affect our emotions, but happiness is temporal and superficial, while joy is a matter of our deepest longings that are called to abide any change of fortune. No matter how our circumstances change, no matter how worldly our worldly fortunes change, the presence of the Spirit, the fellowship with Christ, the communion with the Father does not, so neither should our joy. Joy is belonging to God and his belonging to us, which no alteration in our circumstances in any way can change. That's why we're called to rejoice always. Happiness involves appreciating the gifts. Joy involves resting in the giver. We all experience happiness because we all have a great deal of gifts, many of them. But joy, that abiding joy, is resting in the giver. Sometimes we receive circumstances that are very difficult to bear, and in those times, though happiness is far from us, joy shouldn't be. Just because we can't see suffering or difficult Difficulty as a gift doesn't mean that it isn't, right? That's we, in our wisdom, have a hard time seeing it. It's very difficult to see how cancer is a gift, right? It's very difficult to see how marriage problems are a gift, but they are. Paul says uh, in 2 Corinthians 16, he says something very interesting. The apostles were persecuted, and though they were sorrowful, they were always rejoicing. So sorrow isn't something that drives away joy. You can have joy in the midst of sorrow because you have Christ in the midst of sorrow. Joy is a key feature of the New Testament. Various forms of the word appear 326 times, and it is, in fact, discussed by every single New Testament author. That's quite interesting. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he longs for us to experience the joy that he has in the Father. The abiding presence of God is an abiding sense of joy. That's what he wants. He wants us to have the Father. He wants us to have himself always. And in having him always, we have joy always. In Romans fourteen seventeen, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, I don't like hearing that, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay? The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Okay? It's not a matter of trucks and jobs and money and fridges and tables and homes and happiness. It's a matter of the abiding presence of God in our lives. The problem is, how do we rejoice in the Lord always? I mean, always. It seems a little extreme. It seems easy to rejoice in God during Christmas, right? That's the easiest time, probably, for many of us. It's easy to rejoice in him when your spouse adores you and thinks you're the best. 
It seems easy to rejoice in the Lord on the Sabbath when we gather and we are singing and we are dressed in nice clothes and there's lots of feasting going on. It seems very easy. But how does a man rejoice in the Lord when he's standing at the bedside of his broken wife holding their stillborn child? How do you rejoice when your husband can't seem to keep from raging out on you even though he promised not to? How do you rejoice when your plans are thwarted consistently? The traffic jam, the kids' messy pants when you're late, when your daughter is in the ER again. How does Paul expect us to rejoice always during the bad test results, the ongoing perpetual trials, the rabid loneliness, and the apathy? The problem is we don't know what joy is or where it's ultimately found. The anxiety of cares takes our joy from us. We seek joy where it can't be found. Sin separates us from God, and so it separates us from joy. But the abiding presence of God is here. Paul says in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 4, the Lord is at hand. Each time in verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, he constantly is mentioning the fact that Jesus is present. He keeps bringing it up. That's why we are told not to be anxious. This is why we're told to pray with thanksgiving. God is here. He's at hand. Look at your hands. Everyone look at your hands. Everyone look at them. Even down in your lap, look at them. See, that's how close Jesus is. He's right there, always. Jesus humbled himself to come among a mankind to redeem them so that once he ascended in, glor- in glory, the spirit would dwell in us always. Rejoice always in everything. Pray with thanksgiving. So what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack Philippians 4, 4 through 7, and discover why C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. To begin, let us consider how we should rejoice in the Lord always. Now, there's two important ideas to remember here. Um, people don't rejoice in the Lord always either because they forget him in the gifts or, the tr- or they forget him in the trials. Uh, I've actually talked a great deal about remembering the Lord in the midst of goodness. Uh, there was a sermon I did at Thanksgiving two years ago called To Remember is to Rejoice. So I've talked about that before, and you have to make choices when you're up here. And so I'm not going to be talking about remembering to rejoice in the Lord during good times. Um, I'm going to talk about remembering to rejoice in the Lord in the bad times. I think, um, well, I'll be honest. Where I'm at, that's just what I need to hear, so (laughs) everybody else gets to hear it too. (laughs) The things that arise that threaten our joy, as a category of events, we can understand. We can understand them. Okay, as a category, philosophically, we can talk about, yeah, you know, bad stuff happens to good people. But when you're ministering to one another, right, when you're ministering to people who are in bad circumstances, we have no idea why that circumstance has happened. This is what makes it so difficult. You can talk about it, you know, the forest, but then when you're confronted with trees, all you want to do is chop them down. You have no idea really why they're there. So this is why God has provided us with wisdom literature, The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that there are two views of earth, the view of earth from earth and the view of earth from heaven, right? There's what we can see and there's what he can see. This is why in Ecclesiastes he talks about above and below the sun. Above the sun, God sees everything. Below the sun, we see only what we can see in the here and now. Under the sun, we all experience tragedy. From above the sun, where God sees the end from the beginning, tragedy has been put to death at the cross and no longer plagues his people. This is called the tragic end of tragedy. Peter Lightheart talks about it in a book called Deep Comedy, in which he argues that there is actually, at this point, no tragedy. Tragedy has been taken away. Okay? Every tear will be wiped away. Every death will be undone. 
Every lame person will walk. Every mute person will talk. Every soldier will have every lost limb restored to him. Every rape, every murder, theft, greedy, misdeed, genocide, mutilation, and sin is atoned for. Punishment will be meted out. Injustice will be rectified in every possible way in Jesus Christ. Every humiliation in this world will lead to an exaltation in the other side of the grave. If you think of the humiliation of the cross, the sin, the treachery, the wickedness, and the shame as a metaphor for all the tragedy that all of us experience, then applying the gospel becomes easier. Where did the cross lead? To an empty tomb. Where did the humiliation of Jesus Christ lead? To his exaltation. All the crosses here will lead to an empty tomb in heaven. And aren't there a lot of crosses? The world seems to be full of them. Every experience here of the cross will be marked by an empty tomb in heaven. Jesus tells us, he tells us in his exaltation, in his raising up out of the grave, tragedy is gone. Death is gone. Pain is gone. Because I've won. But the problem is we're confronted with the view from earth, right? It's very hard to forget or very hard to remember that view from above the sun when you're wandering around here on earth. Our eyes of faith are blurred always by the eyes of flesh. Sitting by the bedside of a mother holding a stillborn child, standing at the graveside service of someone who died before their time, watching news reports, when we look at the sin in our own lives, the pain of our children, the broken homes, the selfishness, I say there's no tragedy, and rightfully, many of you, hopefully all of you, scoff. Many wag their head and say, no, there is. (laughs) There really is tragedy. I felt it. I know it. I live it. We don't see the end from the beginning when we look with eyes of flesh. We don't. We see, it's all we see, the pain, the misery, and the heartache. But Jesus did win. He really did win. We know where all of this leads. We know the end of the story, and in the end, there will be no tragedy. When we cling to Jesus as the exalted Lord, we cling to the end. When we cling to the restoration that's coming in him, we cling to the end. He abides in us as we turn to him, and in him we experience joy even as our lives, our bodies, our relationships are rocked by the circumstances of life. There it is. See, you just cling to Jesus, right? Slap that on a poster with some kittens and a nice verse, and we're all stimulated for life, right? I'm inspired. Are you inspired? But what does it mean? What does it mean? Cling to Jesus? Like write his name on a piece of paper and just walk around clutching it? What is that? Rejoicing is something that we do. Joy is is a noun. Rejoicing is a verb. It's very important to remember that. It's the active aspect of Jesus' presence. Joy is not passive. This is why Paul says Jesus is at hand. Pray in everything with thanksgiving. He goes on to explain how we rejoice in everything. Gratitude in prayer is rejoicing in the Lord. Jesus is at hand, and since you have a relationship with him, communicate with him. Relationships are based on communication. In the midst of life, dialogue with Jesus. He is always present. Also, there is always something to be grateful for. There's always something to be grateful for. This is why it's so hard. I I mean, it's nice to say cling to Jesus And what I always forget is this. He's right there. He's right there. He's promised to listen. He's promised if we come to him with thanksgiving, if we come to him, his presence is the joy that we are longing for. 
It's the joy that we are longing for. We give thanks because though we can't see with eyes of flesh, every good thing is a gracious gift, and every bad thing will turn into a good thing, a gracious gift. It's delayed, but it's coming. We know the end of the story. Thank Jesus for his victory. Rejoice in that victory, no matter how much your circumstances look like defeat. This is the thing that we all need. You're not going to get joy by osmosis. You get joy because there is the Lord. You turn to him. You experience his presence in the midst of whatever you're going through. And in that presence, you experience joy. We forget that part. We forget that part. We cry out in our hearts, but we don't cry out to him. We cry out to one another, but we don't cry out to him. We complain to one another, but we don't go to him. And when we go to him, sometimes, what is it like? Is it thankfulness? It's not thankfulness because we can't see it. We don't get it. What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? And so we don't go with thanksgiving. If you want joy, he provides it. But you can only get it in him. Okay? Go to him with thanksgiving. Go to him with thanksgiving. The Christian life is full, full, chock-a-block full of victories cleverly disguised as defeats. This is one of the many things I can't possibly understand about God. Life is full of victories cleverly disguised as defeats. When the apostles were stood at the foot of the cross and Jesus breathed his last, it certainly didn't look like victory. They couldn't imagine the glory coming. Because the gospel has two parts. His humiliation that leads to his exaltation. Our own lives exist in the part of the story at the foot of the cross. That's the reality of our lives. We're there with the apostles at the foot of the cross looking up at what looks like defeat, and we are baffled as to what's going on. Baffled. But the gospel itself, the story of the gospel, how it's structured, gives us something to talk to the Lord about. Lord, here is another tomb that confronts me. I can't see past it, but I know that you are on the other side. I know that you are the Lord of life. I know that you are the Lord of defeated and empty tombs. Comfort me. Thank you for this opportunity to know your humiliation personally, that my exaltation in you will be all the sweeter. Right? What are we going to do in heaven forever? Have you ever wondered about that? I didn't really think about that until my eight-year-old asked me that. And uh, yet again, I was confronted with one of the many questions I have no idea how to answer. I don't know, barbecue? I I really don't know. (laughs) But if you think about all the crosses here leading to empty tombs there, there's going to be quite a lot to rejoice about, right? If you think of the empty tombs just in the last two years, sorry, the crosses the last two years, that's a lot of empty tombs on the other side. It's a lot of empty tombs. Joy cometh in the morning, the psalmist says, and we're all waiting for morning. And joy is waiting for that morning. He's at hand to take our hand, not just to stand there, to lead us to that morning. Sorry. (laughs) I knew this one was going to be tough. Sorry. This is what the gospel is, people. The good news. The good news that in Jesus, tragedy is in fact defeated completely. Good news is meant to be proclaimed. The man sitting by the bedside of his dying wife needs someone else to tell him what he can't tell himself, right? Who tells himself this while they're in the midst of it? The presence of the Lord is found in his body, and sometimes that's all the presence we feel. One another, 
one another. That's what we feel sometimes. It's all the presence of the Lord that we feel. But in us, the Lord dwells. He is at hand. Speak for him. We tell one another the story of a God who knows the way out of the tomb. A story about a God who loved, for no reasonable purpose, a rebellious people. A God who entered the realm of flesh and darkness as a great light to show those rebellious people the way out of this world through a tomb. We tell a story about a God who became a slave, a servant who loved, who obeyed the Father unto death. We tell a story about a God who clung to a cross by nails in his flesh as the world shook and the sky went dark and all hope seemed lost. A God who cried out in agony and went silent, who was carried beneath the earth and laid to rest. And then, with the dawn of a new universe, that God rose from the earth as the Lord of life and led our captivity and our tragedy captive, defeated forever. This is the story we need to hear. Because this life is a life where the tomb confronts us every day. Relationships are threatened with death by sin. Our bodies are threatened with death and illness and disease, wickedness and injustice. Our plans and our aspirations are threatened by sudden and shocking turns of the unexpected and unwanted. We want joy. We want security. We want peace. We want fellowship. And they are found in Jesus. He is at hand. You're never alone. What are we rejoicing in? The grace and the fellowship of the exalted Jesus. R.C. Sproul wrote, If Christ is in me and I am in him, that relationship is not a sometimes experience. The Christian is always in the Lord, and the Lord is always in the Christian. And that is always a reason for joy. Even if the Christian cannot rejoice in his circumstances, if he finds himself passing through pain, sorrow, or grief, he can still rejoice in Christ. We rejoice in the Lord, and since he never leaves us or forsakes us, we can rejoice always. We know ourselves, right? We think we do. We think we know ourselves so well. We know what we need. We know what is best for our kids, our spouses, our friends, our coworkers. We know what the te- which team should win. We know how much money we ought to make. We know who should make up our clique. We know what so-and-so's problem is. We know that God promises glorification and exaltation. We know he promises peace and joy, and we want it. We want it now. And he wants us to have it too. But we look to things for joy when joy is only found in him. And so he takes away the idol. He takes away the distraction so that we will listen. He, ta- he, he takes away everything we think we know so that we will know him better. He takes away everything we think we know all about because really what he wants us to know is him. Jonah sat in the belly of a whale for three days and his only option was to listen. He couldn't see, he couldn't eat, he couldn't talk to anyone. All he could do was listen. Jonah, yeah, sorry, just said that. This is why C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. We aren't listening. We've forgotten the story. We forget so easily the God that we serve. Now, let me ask you this question. If God had come to you and he said, I've got this problem, a sin problem, an evil problem, and I want you to help me fix it, would would, would your story, would the way you have worked it out involve the most powerful being laying aside his supremacy and his majesty to be weak? Would it have involved 
the murder of an innocent man? Would it involve humiliation and a tomb? Is that how we would have dealt with the problem? Then it's no wonder that we don't understand what God is doing. We don't understand what he's done in his own life. (laughs) And yet we all rejoice and receive so much from it. And then we turn to our lives and we think we can figure it out so easily. We don't know the way out of tombs. We don't get why there's a tomb at all. We don't comprehend that the only way to deal with the tomb is to follow Jesus through it. See the end from the beginning. See the end from the beginning. It's not really a tomb. It's a doorway to fellowship with God, to joy. And if we are experiencing joy, what is driven out? What does joy, being filled with joy, drive out? Experiencing God's presence and joy drives out anxiety. What is the opposite of joy? It's not sorrow. We've already seen that you can have sorrow and joy at the same time. The opposite of joy is anxiety. Okay, Paul goes on to say, after verse 4, he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. First, anxiety is fear. That's what it is. We don't experience joy because we, we experience fear. We don't know what's going to happen to us. We don't know how God is going to work it out. We don't really know if he, if, does he mean this for good or ill. So what we're, fear leads to anxiety. We're anxious about everything that's going on. Okay? The opposite of joy isn't sorrow. The opposite of joy is fear. It's anxiety. Now, the other thing that he says here is interesting. Is he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, what does that mean? It's an interesting word choice, I think, on the part of at least the ESV translators, reasonableness. The word really closer to what they mean here is equanimity. Equanimity. Okay, be balanced. Be balanced. There's a time for patience. There's a time for um, fortitude. There's a time for courage. Okay, there's a time to cry. There's a time to laugh. Right? This, is, this is what, again, the wisdom literature teaches us. Be, let your equanimity be known to everyone. Be balanced. Don't freak out. <laughs> right? So many things happen to us, and what our responses are to what? Freak out of our minds that something is happening or ignore it, right? Also, this, thankfully, puts the person who just wants to be happy, clappy all the time out to the woodshed because there is, right? People come to you when you need a dirge and they want to sing Kumbaya. You guys ever experienced that? I've been that guy, but I've also experienced that guy, and nobody likes that guy, right? Equanimity, be balanced, Right? Jesus, Jesus is in charge. He's not, you know, on a coffee break. Sometimes we can't fix our minds on the view from heaven. Okay? Sometimes we can't fix our minds on the view from heaven, the one that sees the end from the beginning. Sometimes that isn't enough for us. The tragedy is too sudden. The trial is prolonged and too awful. And that's when we turn to the presence of the Lord, which is near, and meditate on the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. Okay? Be even-minded. Meditate on the gospel. Okay? Be even-minded. Meditate on the gospel. Christian meditation is not Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation is an emptying of the mind. I've done it before, right? You clear out everything, and so you just have this all-encompassing nothingness sort of dwelling in your mind. Well, that's not Christian meditation. Christian meditation is filling up, right? You fix your mind, your heart on Christ, and you think of him in his humiliation. You think of him in his exaltation. You think of the stories told about him. You think of the things he said. You think of what Paul said about him. You fill up on him. And when you fill up on him, right, you have a balanced view, 
You're looking to the Lord instead of you're not being, and it drives out anxiousness, which fills you with joy. This is kind of how these things work together. When anxiety comes flooding in, Jesus feels far away. Joy retreats. We are filled with questions. Why? What are you doing? Why me? We don't understand what the author of our life story is doing. And so we are filled with questions instead of joy. We are given questions as a secondary means to experience joy. This is the thing. If you're not going to remember the view from heaven, right, and we're down here and we're like running around like chickens with their head cut off, what is going on? God fills us with questions as a secondary means to give us joy. Because the only one who can answer our questions are God himself. Okay? It's, it's sort of the side door to Jesus. The questions turn, us, turn our attention to him, crying out to him, seeking him, reading more, praying more. What is he doing? What is going on? Trying to find out the why behind things. We turn to him. It says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. If we pray with thanksgiving, we have to be prepared for the answers, okay? If we're going to God with requests, we have to be prepared for our answers. Sometimes the wisdom of the body, the wisdom of the mind, reading scripture, reminds us of that view from heaven, and it helps us. But sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes that's just not enough. Sometimes when we cry out to God, we don't know why. Why this? Why now? Why so long? What we have to remember is that Something like what happened to Job in chapters 38 through 42. If you read it, you realize something funny about Job. God never answers his questions. He reveals himself. Job is full of a ton of questions. When you read the book of Job, you're full of a ton of questions. And the end isn't answers to the questions. It's God himself. It's God himself. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote this beautiful thing, Until We Have Faces. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer could suffice? Only words, words to be let out to battle against other words. Sometimes he is the answer. You're not going to know why. He doesn't want you to know why. He wants you to know him. Ben Palpent uh, was a teacher at a Christian school in Spokane, and he experienced something very strange. One day he felt like his brain was on fire, and they found him with his head in the snow out in the yard. And for the next seven months, this brilliant teacher, loving husband, devoted father, churchman, loses everything, all of his faculties. He forgets names. He forgets how to teach. He begins to have tremors. Eventually what happens to him is he's laying seven months later in a bed drooling. He can do nothing for himself, nothing. And he wrote a book about it called He's Since Recovered, actually, He's since recovered, if you can believe it. The doctors never knew what happened to him. This, this affliction came upon him and then departed. And he wrote a book called Small Cup of Light. It's about his experience. And, and this is what he says. God is after much more than happiness in our lives. He is after a sustaining joy, and he will give us that joy by giving us himself. Whether through the small gifts of life that bring us gladness or through the dark night of suffering. Because people are different. People need different things. Okay, joy is God's presence, and sometimes we experience him in an avalanche of blessing and sometimes in a hurricane of sorrow when all we are left with him. Okay, he says in this book, it's fascinating. Think about this. Sometimes all we're, we're called to go into the darkness with nothing but him. Now think about that for a moment. 
That actually is far more terrifying than we realize. Take everything away that you take pride in, everything away that gives you strength, everything away that gives you comfort, everything but him, and he calls you into the darkness. Sometimes that's what's required of us. Sometimes that's what is needed by some of us to truly know him. And it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. Jesus wants us to have joy, and joy is his presence. The circumstances of life are meant to drive you to him. Meditate on him. Meditate on the end of the story. Meditate on the gospel. Humiliation leads to exaltation. Rejoice in that. Be thankful for that. Gratitude is a high tower where the Lord dwells, and he invites you to live with him. Don't freak out. Jesus is near. Don't be anxious. Go to him in prayer. Rejoice in him because the end of the story is the restoration of everything in him. When you are racked with the tragedy of life, rest in the belly of the whale and listen. He is the answer. He is your joy. Don't be anxious. Don't respond as if God doesn't win, as if he is nowhere to be found. Just because you don't feel him doesn't mean he isn't there. He is there. Rejoice. Stop trying to find joy apart from him. This is what many of us need to hear. This is where we get to the rub. Stop trying to find joy apart from him. Stop medicating your anxiety with things, with gifts, with culture, with chemicals, with escapism. Don't fight your anxiety with the weapons and pleasures of this world. Let your reasonableness, your equanimity be known to everyone. Come alongside one another in the turmoil of life and point each other to Christ, our true joy. Give each other joy. Give each other the gospel. Remind one another of the reasons to be grateful. Be the presence of the Lord. Be who you are to one another. Are you anxious? Are you imbalanced in your responses in events of life? Are you full of fear, full of disappointment? Do current events fill you with anxiety? Are you struggling to find joy? Are you really just seeking to be happy? Happiness is not what the kingdom of Jesus is all about. Joy is, and joy is only found in the presence of Jesus, and lo, he is at hand. Are you ungrateful? Are you angry at God because his plans are not your plans? Are you angry because the tomb is too scary? Are you struggling to find something to thank him for? Are you communicating demands, or are you thanking him? Is he silent? Are you chasing joy in chemicals, trying to quiet the anxiety with noises and distractions, seeking happiness in whatever form seems easiest to you? Are you struggling to understand what God is doing? Are you at war with your circumstances? Are you at war with God? Are you striving and striving to escape anxiety and God's authority? Do you need peace? Are you apathetic to your own life and the, life, the lives of those around you? Okay, Paul wants the Philippians. This is, this is the big finish here. This is what the book of Philippians is all about. Paul wants the Philippians to experience joy and peace. They're full of anxiety and beginning to war within themselves, within their community, because of their anxiousness. They are not responding to events or one another with reasonableness. One last byproduct here, the last verse. Rejoicing in Jesus always, verse 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your witness be one of equanimity. 
Be grateful that we have the Lord of life and the Lord of empty tombs as a master. The presence of the Lord is near. His throne of grace, of, uh, his throne of grace in prayer is near. Rejoice and peace will guard your hearts in Christ. Now, this word guard, again, this is funny. I don't, it's really garrison. It's billet. Most of us don't know what that word means. Back in the day when an army would occupy an area to live there, they would live in people's homes. Okay, don't think guard here like a sentry, like a lone sentry or a bodyguard. Okay, when the peace of God shows up in, in Christ, it's like the 82nd Airborne. Okay, it's Fort Benning. That's what it is in your heart. Nothing can destroy you. Nothing will overcome you. No sin, no humiliation, no rape, no murder, no illness, no injustice, no wrong, no difficult circumstance. Cancer doesn't win. Poverty doesn't win. The Supreme Court doesn't win. Obama doesn't win. The false gods of this world don't win. ISIS doesn't win. Be at peace because God wins. The war is over. No matter what your eyes of flesh see, no matter what your ears of flesh hear, the end of the story is Jesus his goodness, his humility, his scepter. Don't be anxious. Rejoice. Remember the gospel and the end of the story. Turn to Jesus with words of gratefulness and joy will follow. And let peace garrison in your heart like the host of heaven, the army of the Lord. For though the world shake and your perishable flesh breaks up, your plans fail, tragedy seems to beset you at every side, you will stand in your glorified body forever, beholding Jesus Christ our Lord. He is at hand to lead you there. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the gospel. We thank you that in the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus, we come to understand our own lives. Father, he knelt before you when all he wanted was his friends to pray for him. He came to you and he wanted you to take away what was coming. But he did it for the joy set before you. Father, we don't have that courage We don't have that strength. So give us your son that we may. And amen.